The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. So we are studying the book of Acts, and one of the things that we like to do as a church is study through books of the Bible. And so we're, we're committed to walking through big books like the book of Acts and sort of taking a long period of time to, to soaking in it and thinking about it and wrestling through what it means for us, present tense, 2022, Greer, South Carolina. Uh, we've summarized the book of Acts like this. The book of Acts is about God, by his spirit, creating a people to make Jesus, his son, known. We had a, a longer definition uh, prior to this, but I was challenged by one of our own to shorten that thing up. So this is it. This is our shortened summary of the book of Acts. God, by his spirit, creating a people to make Jesus, his son, known. This is the story of the book of Acts. The story of the Gospels, the four books that precede the book of Acts in our New Testaments, is the story of Jesus. How Jesus was like a stone that builders rejected, but a stone, nevertheless, that God chose to make the cornerstone of the temple of his people. That God is building something on Christ. God is creating a people built on Jesus, built on the story and the power and the message and by the Holy Spirit that Jesus himself possessed. And Acts is the story of the church, how Jesus creates his church right on the heels of the Gospels. And as Jonathan said just a couple of moments ago, I mean, I love thinking, you know, as we read through the book of Acts, I mean, these are our fathers and our, and, our, and our mothers and our brothers and sisters in the faith. It's so incredible to, to see that, you know, we're coming together and we're singing of the same Jesus that they sang of, and we're, we're, we're taking of the same supper that they took of, and we're, we're reading the same scriptures that they read, and we're, we're being the people of God together just like them. And it's really rich, I think, for us to think about the continuity that we have with these early believers. Now, one of the things that we've observed over the last couple of weeks is that this, this building and the growing of the church repeatedly has been met with obstacles, all sorts of obstacles, obstacles that are both internal and external to the church. Uh, In chapter 3, there was this incredible miracle that Peter and John did, and it's met with resistance by the religious leaders because they see the favor with which Peter and John are now being viewed by the people in Jerusalem. And so these religious leaders oppose Peter and John, and in this particular instance, they ultimately just slap Peter and John on the wrist. Peter and John respond by preaching two sermons, one to the people and one to the religious leaders. And what they say is that Jesus, the one that you have rejected, the one that you have hardened yourself against, in fact, the, the one th- that you were guilty of putting to death, this Jesus, God has made both Lord and Christ. God has exalted the one that you've rejected. Then in chapter 5, we see more miracles. Uh, we see it's sort of a, an amazing description of the, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit at play in the apostles. And that section in Acts chapter 5, we're told that Peter's shadow is powerful enough to heal. That people are flocking to Peter in hopes that his shadow will pass over them and in hopes that these people would be healed. And similarly, they are met with resistance. This time, they're imprisoned. It says that all of the apostles are imprisoned. But an angel of the Lord appears to the, apostle, he, the apostles and he, and, he, and he releases them and he says, don't stop preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. And then once again, it's followed up by a sermon with the same idea. The one that you've rejected, Jesus, now he is the one that is doing and and, and achieving all of the things that you see here before you. Jesus, whom you rejected, God has exalted to his right hand. And then in chapter 6, we reach what is kind of like the culmination of all of the conflict that's been brewing for the church in the city of Jerusalem since chapter 3. 
In this chapter, we witness the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. Let's begin by looking at Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand, golly, I love this, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It was just, there was too much juice. It was just, they couldn't, they couldn't withstand it. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, Stephen is a character that we were introduced to in the passage last week. Last week, we talked about the gift of deacons, how an obstacle surfaced in the life of the church. It was this potential for division, and then God graciously provided deacons to remedy that potential obstacle. And Stephen was one of the deacons that we were initially introduced to. Last week, in that passage, we were told that he, is, he was a good man, uh, uh, he was a man, rather, of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. This week, we're told that Stephen is full of grace and power, and we're told that he's doing great signs and wonders among the people. All right, so this sets up very similar to what we've seen happen up to this point. We have the, the apostles or, or some of the leaders within the early church. They're doing incredible things, and it stirs up some opposition, some controversy, Opposition rises up against Stephen like we've seen thus far, and, and once again, it's escalated. It's gotten beyond the point of where we last saw the opposition reach. It seems like we're reaching a turning point in the book of Acts. We'll consider this more in a couple of weeks. But many of the folks with whom the apostles have previously found favor, we're told, are growing resistant now to the message of Jesus. Lots of folks and lots of different types of folks are growing restless and are increasingly uncomfortable with the news of the resurrection. Here Luke lists out for us in verse, in verse 9 all of the folks that are now kind of worked up being, being opposed to the message of Jesus. It's interesting that a lot of these folks that are being described here aren't natives of the city of Jerusalem. They're folks who have made a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. It's likely that they are especially zealous about things like the temple and the law because they live you know, so, so far away from it. Maybe they have a kind of an especial national zeal for these things. And so they are especially aggravated and, and um, gosh, peeved at some of the things that Stephen is saying and doing and the apostles with him. But it's interesting that the accusations that are brought against Moses are, could kind of be summarized in two ways. The first is that he's blasphemous against Moses and God. It's like the holiest figures in Israel's history. Stephen is, is flippant about it. He, he speaks blasphemously about Moses and about God. And it also says that he speaks blasphemous words against the temple and the law. What we might say are the holiest of symbols or the holiest of items. Stephen is flippant about it. He speaks blasphemously about these things. Stephen speaks, he speaks in a way that is unbecoming of the honor that they're due. Again, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks when we consider Stephen's death. 
but it's interesting how similar Stephen's trial and even these accusations are to the trial and accusations that are put forward against Jesus. We've observed again and again that the, the church is the body of Christ. And to be a Christian is to put on the life of Christ. We've talked about that. Uh, and we see that at play in the story of Acts. That these characters are in some very, gosh, almost exact ways, they are reliving the life of Jesus. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said about these accusations that are brought against him, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge that nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now Stephen responds in his sermon with a story. He begins by challenging the hearer's assumption about who they understand themselves to be. One thing that we often forget when we read these stories is how historically rooted these events are. I mean, one thing about Christianity that is, that is unique is that it is a thoroughly historical religion. That when we talk about Jesus and we talk about Stephen and we talk about Peter and we talk about Moses and Abraham and all of these stories, we are talking about very concrete things that happened in history, on planet Earth, you know, like within, a, within a, a, a plane's ride from here, right? These are historical events. And Stephen is speaking to a really particular people with a long and storied history. And the sermons all throughout the book of Acts, and especially these first chapters, are about demonstrating how Jesus is the completion to those stories. You know, they've rejected Jesus as an aberration to the story, as an aberration to the Hebrew Bible, as a, as a kind of a, an unwanted mutation of the story of Israel. And the apostles, rather, are saying, no, like Jesus is the completion to all of these things that these stories have always anticipated. Jesus isn't something outside of what God has been doing. Jesus is in complete continuity. And in fact, he's the exclamation mark on all of the things that God has been doing in our history. Stephen begins with Abraham the kind of umbrella figure of the Old Testament, the original patriarch, the one that God promises to make a great nation out of. Stephen reminds him, he says, God called Abraham out of what is modern-day Iran. He called him and said, I'm going to give him the promised land, and he fathers Jacob, and then from Jacob come the 12 patriarchs of Israel. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, and Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. 
And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. There's this amazing story in the latter chapter of Genesis that Stephen has just summarized here. It's the story of Joseph. It's the story of how Joseph was really proud of his brightly colored coat and he was really proud of his dreams and it worked up a bunch of jealousy in his brothers. And so his brothers rejected him, conspired to have him put to death. His brother Judah, which could be translated transliterated into Greek as Judas, sold him for a sum of silver. They rejected Joseph and then their rejection eventually became the means of their salvation. It's an amazing story that caps off Genesis. Lo and behold, the one that they rejected becomes the means of their salvation. Stephen's saying, remember this story? The brother that was rejected wasn't a surprise. That was actually God's plan all along. It was God's purpose all along to make the rejected brother the very how of everybody else's salvation. Stephen says, remember that? Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. When he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Now he pivots to the story of Moses, the story of the Exodus. How when uh, Jacob's family kind of transitions to, to be helped by Joseph, and he, he transitions the family into, into Egypt. How they are eventually enslaved by a pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph. They're enslaved and they're oppressed and they're exploited. So much so that verse 19 reminds us that uh, the people of Israel were demanded to, to hand over their infants to exposure, to let them be exposed to the elements, to the wild animals, to kill their children. But then he reminds them that there's this amazing pattern at play. Moses was rejected. As the people increased and Pharaoh wanted them done, Moses was rejected. But again, the rejection becomes God's means of salvation. He shipped off in a basket and Pharaoh's daughter happens upon him coincidentally. And lo and behold, Moses grows up to be instructed by the mightiest and wisest in Egypt. Verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by strike, uh, striking down the Egyptian. Look at this, verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. All right, so there we, we can pause and we can say, aha, I think I'm beginning to see what Stephen is doing here. Verse 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you were brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 25. He supposed that his brothers would understand what God was doing through him, but they didn't understand. Verse 27. They asked Moses, Who made you ruler and judge? And then Moses is cast out exiled. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not care to look. 
Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. Now, if you're a 90s kid, you can't not think of the prince of Egypt at this point, I would assume. I've actually never seen it myself, but from what I understand, people love the prince of Egypt. So, a moment of cultural connection I feel obligated to reference there. It's the story of the burning bush, right, where God appears to Moses in the bush, the bush is on fire, but it's not burnt up. And what does God promise to do through Moses? He's going to deliver the people of Israel through Moses. Verse 35. Look at this. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Does that sound familiar at all to anything else that we've read in the book of Acts? This Moses, whom your fathers rejected, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. That actually sounds a lot like a few lines in other sermons that we've already read, but it's not Moses that's being described. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 36. I'll have it on the screen. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus whom you crucified. What about Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 13? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And so we begin to see where Stephen is going with this particular sermon. Hang tight. Verse 36. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Verse 39, but our fathers refused to obey him, thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, and saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you, bring me to, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. The people, our fathers, he says, at this crucial juncture, our fathers refused to obey Moses. They thrust him aside and they chose idolatry, golden calves, created things instead. They rejected the very one that God sent to save them. They, he performed signs and wonders. It was so clear, you guys. Moses is from the Lord. But they rejected him. The one from whom they received the law that, that, that Stephen's hearers were obsessed with, the law that had been passed down to them, he says, our fathers refused to obey Moses. They cast him aside, and they said, we would prefer our enslavers. Three times. Three times in the sermon, Stephen mentions that Moses 
was rejected by the people of Israel. And right in the middle of that, he says, Moses promises that there's going to be a prophet just like me. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Here Stephen draws out some elements in the sermon up to this point that have been a little bit more subtle. One author called this kind of a theological geography that Stephen's offering. He says, God's people have always been a sojourning people. You think back to his comments about Abraham. That's exactly what he said, that this is going to be a sojourning people. And the reason is, is because God doesn't dwell in temples. Yes, God has given the people of Israel a temple, but Stephen is saying, ironically, you accuse me of blaspheming the temple. You challenge my posture to the temple. You are the ones who dishonor the temple by idolizing the temple and not recognizing the thing to which the temple points. And here's the conclusion of this whole sermon. This is what Stephen has been building towards. Verse 51. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen says, your fathers always resisted God's purposes. He says, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work through Moses they resisted. The Holy Spirit's work through Jeremiah and through Isaiah, they resisted. Like father, like son. He says, you say you love Moses? You love Moses? Let me tell you the story of Moses. The story of Moses was that he was rejected by our fathers, and he promised that there was one that was going to come that was going to be just like him. You say you, that, that I oppose the tradition of Moses? Well, the tradition of Moses is that he, was, he came to his own people, and his own people received him not. Just like you're doing to Jesus, he says. This sermon is brilliantly demonstrating how Jesus is the completion to that story. And tragically, ironically, his hearers are living the exact same pattern as their forefathers. They rejected Moses and they reject Christ. Christ is the one who is rejected, the one who is given over to a cross, the one who spoke with wisdom and authority in a way that challenged the, the authority of the religious leaders, in a way that made them jealous, in a way that angered the common man, they opposed Christ. They falsely accused Christ. They rejected Christ, and they put Christ on a cross. The light of the world came into the darkness, and the darkness would not receive him. The darkness wanted to slay him. They wanted to snuff him out. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Christ, though he was crucified and buried, Christ was raised from the dead because this was God's plan all along, that the one that was rejected would become the cornerstone. 
And to be Christian means that we look at Christ and we see Jesus on the cross and we see that as God's mercy and God's kindness to us, to all of us, to bear our sin on our behalf. The crowds are saying of Stephen, he blasphemes blasphemes Moses, he blasphemes the temple, and Stephen's like, I'm the one who understands what's actually taking place. You are the ones who blaspheme Moses, the law, and the temple. Ironically, you dishonor the temple, you dishonor Moses by not seeing this pattern. A couple of weeks back, I saw this brilliant, I don't even know how I came across it, this brilliant sketch that a couple of, uh, it's like a, a British sketch comedy group did. Uh, I think it came out in around 2006 or so. Uh, and a pastor friend of mine is actually the one who, who brought it up to me recently, kind of in regards to Stephen's sermon here. It's this British comedy duo, and it's two soldiers in Nazi garb. And maybe you've seen this particular skit before. It's two soldiers in Nazi garb. And one guard looks to the other, and he's got this look of an epiphany. It's like they're sitting in like a trench, and he like looks up. And he kind of looks at the other guy as if something's just occurred to him. And he says, Hans, are we the baddies? Have you ever seen this skit before? He's like, it just occurs to him. Hans, are we the bad guys? Like, I don't know, our emblem on our hat, it's got skulls on it. We're wearing a lot of black and we got red. And it's like, I don't know, that just seems like very bad guy things to do. Are we sure, we, we sure we're not the bad guys? And Hans is like, oh, no, 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 we're not the bad guys. Like, no, we're definitely the good guys in this. And he's like, ah, I don't know, man. The skulls just kind of tip the scales for me. I feel like we're the bad guys in this situation. Listen. What Stephen is driving home to his hearers is this. You are the bad guys. You are the villains in this story. You have rejected Jesus just as your fathers rejected all the prophets and all of the works of God that pointed to Jesus. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it, you killed the Messiah. They've convinced themselves. We've learned from our fathers. We're not like them. See how we honor the temple. We honor the law. We speak rightly of Moses. We're the good ones. And Stephen utterly shatters that illusion and says, you slide right into the same patterns of behavior as your fathers, like father, like son. And here's a worthwhile question for every soul in this room. Have I considered that I'm one of the bad guys? Have I considered that I'm a villain in this story? Because there's a real sense in which there are two types of people in Scripture. The bad guys and Jesus. And the Lord Jesus confronts every soul with the reality that we are evil. In our sin, in the darkest corners of our heart, we are guilty. We are guilty. We are complicit in the great fracture that runs through everything. One of, my, one of my favorite stories is the story of G.K. Chesterton. He's, he's, he receives this letter from a, from a British newspaper in the early 20th century. And they say to these writers, to, you know, of different stripes and of different backgrounds, what's wrong with the world? It's like, how would you answer that question? And they are. You know, whoever that they is to you, they are wrong with that. They're what's wrong with the world. Taxes or the government or, or whatever. They're what's wrong with the world. You know how G.K. Chesterton responded to this? Dear sirs, I am. Yours truly G.K. Chesterton. The scriptures confront us with the bad news that we are the bad guys. Every one of us. 
Now, we stand justly condemned before God as the bad guys. And the real danger for us, for every soul in this room, is to say, no, no, it can't be me. It it cannot be me that Jesus condemns. It cannot be me. I cannot be one of the ones that 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 is numbered of those who stand guilty before God Almighty. Surely not me. Because we have these stories we tell about ourselves, our own personal histories. I've always gone to church. I'm one of the good ones. I am always well-intentioned. Listen, I, I know that I mess up, and I know that I say things that are out of line sometimes, but that's not the real me. The real me, well, he's not a baddie. It's like he may make mistakes, but he's not a villain. The real me is a good guy. I can assure you, I live the right way. Those people, I understand. They're questionable. I get it. They're, they're the villains, but me, yes, I am certainly one of the good guys. We fool ourselves into thinking, had I been around during the time of the Exodus, I would have been on board with Moses. I would have seen it. I would have recognized the signs and wonders. I am on team Moses. Had I been around in the first century, I would have seen Jesus, and it would have clicked for me, and I would have followed Christ. We fool ourselves when we say, during the Crusades, not me. I would have been opposed. My Facebook status would have been, not my Crusades. Had I been around during the Reformation, we would have seen the indulgences for what they were. We would have not bought into it. We would have stood with Martin Luther right there with him. He and I both. Had I been around during the American slave trade, I would have had the moral clarity and the boldness to not be for that. Not me, no sir, no way. But the gospel invites us to consider. More than that, the gospel demands that we reckon with this truth. This comes from Romans chapter 3, verse 10, quoting Psalm 14. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Maybe we are the baddies. And maybe, like Stephen's hearers, we have a tendency to fool ourselves otherwise. We want to talk a lot about the good news of the gospel, but the good news begins with bad news first. It's condemnation. We stand guilty before a holy God. And I've shared, I've been personal with, with you all before, and I've, and I've talked about how one of my core sin issues is not wanting to be disliked. And I come and I, and I say this feeling burdened by what the scriptures say. And this pushes against my sensibilities. This pushes against all of the things that I want to say. This pushes against my desire to be applauded for, for being clever and funny and likable and whatever else. But the scriptures say, apart from God, we are condemned and we are going to hell. We are just, God, is, God is justifiably angry with us for the sin that we have committed. And we can respond to this in two ways. We'll see more next week. We can respond with hardness and ferocity. What we'll see in the passage in, in two weeks when we, when we come back and we see Stephen's martyrdom is it says that the crowds gnash their teeth at Stephen. They gnash their teeth at Stephen and they put him to death. You know where else the New Testament talks about teeth being gnashed? With anger, the crowds double down in vehement opposition to Stephen and ultimately to the Lord Jesus himself. They stiff arm him. Or we can repent. We can admit that we are sinners. We can confess our complicity in it. We can allow the glass to shatter. We can allow God to graciously show us who we are. And Jesus meets us with mercy. Jesus responds to us with kindness. Jesus receives the weary and the heavy laden. He invites all of it onto himself. Maybe this is you for the first time. Maybe this is you for the 950th time today. Would we repent 
And would we find forgiveness and refreshment and the gift of the Holy Spirit? This is the promise from Peter in Acts chapter 2. After Peter similarly just lays the boom and shucks some corn, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, says that the crowd, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Christ is rejected so that we can be welcomed. So that we can say, I am a sinner and I am justly deserving of your judgment, God, but because Christ was crucified, I can with boldness and confidence approach him and receive the forgiveness that he offers and and know that my conscience can be cleaned, that my objective guilt can be wiped away eternally so that I can be restored to our loving, good, and gracious and and Christ-giving, atonement-providing Father. And so how will we respond tonight? How will we respond to the message of Stephen, which is the message of Jesus? The one who is rejected is now exalted, and he graciously offers pardon for all who are willing to confess. Maybe you're weary and burdened as you come in here tonight. You're just beat up, and it was an effort of the will to even be here. You're beat up by your sin. You're beat up by the sin of others committed against you. And I would say to you, friend, look to Jesus who is strong and kind, whose blood is potent enough to cover you. Jesus can totally redirect us and he can renew us. Because of Christ, we are not our past, we are not our sin, praise be to God. We are not the sin that people have committed against us. We we are restored to God through Christ. We repent, we turn from our sin, we turn to Jesus. Jeremiah describes it as as going from like a, a nasty, dried up, dank, empty well and turning to streams of living waters. That's what Christ came to provide, is living waters. Maybe we walked in tonight with our head high. We are just impenetrable. We are invulnerable to all of this talk. We've heard sermons like this millions of times and we are just absolutely bulletproof when it comes to this stuff. And I would say that I pray Jesus humbles you. I pray that his Holy Spirit shows you with clarity your failings and that he breaks you in order to rebuild you. We don't do a typical invitation, maybe um, depending on sort of what you grew up in. But the invitation for us tonight is if, if there's anything that maybe about this teaching, this sermon that struck a chord with you, I will be available at these back doors um, for the next, you know, as we sing this next song and then as we kind of make our way out, I'll be available back here. And I would love to schedule a time to go to Barista Alley or Panera Bread with you or whatever to talk more in depth about these things and talk more about Jesus with you. It's our prayer that we would have a kind of gospel humility and a gospel boldness that comes together as a church. A recognition that apart from Christ, we stand condemned. But in Christ, we are given Everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come with, a, with a gratitude knowing that it is by your kindness and by your mercy that we can hope in you. 
We don't stand on any of the good deeds that we have done. We don't stand on any of our accomplishments. We don't stand on any of our um, laurels or any of the, the things that we've achieved. We stand solely on the basis of Jesus' work for us. And with that comes a kind of humility and boldness, a humility to recognize that apart from Christ, we are condemned, justly so. But in Christ, we have been given life, and we have been given his spirit, and we have been given hope for tomorrow that we can be made new and that we can live differently, that one year, five years, ten years from now, I can be different than I am today by the power of your spirit. And I do pray, Lord Jesus, for anyone who is here tonight who has been resistant to the gospel and who who finds the things that have been said tonight just completely reprehensible. I pray that something would shatter in their heart, that you would show them the reality of of the the tremendous, amazing grace that we're, we're offered in Jesus. That though we are sinners, though we are enemies of God, God is the supreme enemy lover who sends his son to restore his enemies. We pray that we would hope in you, that we would hope only in you, that we would hope ultimately in you. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.